Hi, neighbors. So glad we're together again. It's great to have you here on this Sunday morning as we talk about neighboring. If you hadn't guessed, we are diving into a new series this morning as I get my shoes tied up uh, about the art of neighboring and what it means to be not just good neighbors from the world standard, but the kind of neighbors that God asks and calls us to be. And you know, I was thinking this week about this topic, about this word, neighbor. And if you think about it for a minute, it's actually a pretty special word. It's a word that, for a lot of us, will evoke memories that carries with it some level of sentimentality. When I was a kid, we lived on a cul-de-sac in Merced, California for five years. My dad was stationed there at Castle Air Force Base. And I was real little, but while we were there, we made connections with some families. Connections that have lasted a lifetime, really. Across the street from us was a family, the Lacys. They were from Mississippi. Bo and Linnell Lacy. And their two boys were the same age as my brother and I, Brett in Mule Tree. That's right, Mule Tree. You've never heard that name before. And what, what, I reminds, what I remember about the Lacey's is that the Southern hospitality from that family just like eked out of them. I would go across the street and spend time in their home and I felt always so welcomed, so affirmed, so encouraged. It was just like having another house that was my house right on the street. And then living right behind us were the Mustards. Velda Mustard was the wife, and I'm just realizing this week how strange the names were on our block, but, but Velda was like the original Mr. Wilson from Home Improvement, because she and my mom would stand, my brother and I would play in the backyard, and my mom would stand at the fence, and she and Velda would talk over the top of the fence before you know, Home Improvement was ever even a thing. And then up the street from us was a family uh, called the Lotterbox. And the Lotterbox were interesting and they were really unique for us because I was an Air Force kid and we moved all over the place. But it just so happens that we were stationed at five different air bases with the Lotterbox. We would, we would be transferred and we would move and the Lotterbox would move too. And we just cruised all over the country with them. And so there was this terrific bond that was formed with them. And years later, um, the wife, Marty... Uh, died of an aneurysm, and it was a real tragic thing, and my parents got to be a, a part of that healing time for those boys and for, for Randy, the husband. And then there was the family that lived right next to us back in Merced. Uh, they had kids that were younger than me, um, one who was born while I was there, and so there were no kids to play with, but what they had was they had a dog, and my parents didn't believe in dogs. I didn't get a dog. I was slightly abused as a child, and so... Um, <laughs> I would go over to the Stallings to play with Sniffer, this little black cocker spaniel dog that I loved so much. And the, the parents were Margie and Gordon. And I remember this one time I went over and I knocked on the door. I was just in the first grade because you could do that back then. You could just walk all over the neighborhood in first grade with no supervision. And so I walk over and I knock on the door and Margie answers. And she says, hi. And I said, can Sniffer play? And she said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Gordon is not feeling well today. And I said, well, I don't want to play with Gordon. I want to play with Sniffer. And she had to explain to me that that wasn't going to work out. But I have so many wonderful memories. And like I said, my parents still to this day visit and vacation and connect and call with those families. This is many years. This is probably 35 years ago. 
And there's still this deep connection because there's just something special about the kind of community that can form when we connect with people right near us in our neighborhoods. Last week, Matt and I were actually introduced by Kevin Palau to a guy named Dave Runyon. And Dave has co-written a book about neighboring. And he talks about the inspiration for his book. And he says it's, it all came together when a group of leaders, a group of pastors, started thinking and praying about this question. How do we care for our community? How do we, in effective ways, reach out into our city and show and share the love of God that we've been offered in Christ? And so what they did was they all met with the mayor of the town and they asked the mayor... Mayor, what does the city need most? If you could like wave a magic wand right now and change one thing, what would it be? And surprisingly, the mayor said, it's very simple. The biggest single factor by far that helps a city flourish is when there are a significant number of really good neighbors. Did you know this? The research actually supports it. It says, when people do something as simple as caring for their neighbors, all kinds of really great things start to happen. When neighbors care, the elderly are watched out for. At-risk youth stop being at risk. Crime actually goes down. Volunteering goes up. Odd things start to happen, like people begin to take a little bit better care of their homes and lawns. Property values increase. But more importantly, isolated people are no longer lonely. All the result of this thing called neighboring. In other words, most of the problems in our cities could be eliminated or at the very least significantly reduced if only our city experienced a surge in really good neighbors. And so this mayor said, you know, people are always calling me up and telling me I should start this program or that program or they're asking for funding for something. But here's what always happens. Inevitably, with programs, interest goes away, funding disappears, leadership wanes. And so what they found is something that we've known all along, and that's this. Relationship always trumps program. What if you started a neighboring movement? That's what the mayor said. What if you started a neighboring movement? And ironically, this mayor was talking to a bunch of pastors and it sort of begs this question. Is there anything in the Bible about neighboring? I mean, it seems to me, if I remember right, according to Jesus, this whole idea of neighboring was actually fairly significant, fairly central, a core idea of what it means to be a follower of God. You see, one day... A religious leader came up to Jesus and asked, Rabbi, of all the commandments in the law, in all of everything that God has given us in terms of his instruction for us, which is the greatest? Which is the greatest commandment? Which is most important? Which will offer me eternal life? What commandment, when followed, most offers the abundant life God promises his follower? What's at the very heart and center of being a God follower in this world. And Jesus' reply was simple. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now say this next part with me. Read it with me off the side screens. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
Now, the reason I had us read this verse is because that is exactly what every Jew of of Jesus' day did every day. They recited this passage. The passage that Jesus quotes here is called the Shema. It's just a Hebrew word for here, and here is the very first word of this text. And Shema was the basic and essential creed of Judaism. You know how in Christianity we have creeds, or um, nations sometimes have creeds, things that they hold to and cling to. The central creed of Judaism was this, Shema. It was the very first text every Jewish child committed to memory. It was the passage every Jewish worship service opened with. It was the verse that every observant Jew recited twice a day, every morning when they woke up and every night before they went to sleep. You see, in Jesus' day, reciting Shema was a way of saying, I'm renewing my relationship with you, God. God, you are Lord and King. You are central in my life. And so when Jesus gives this answer... No one is shocked. This is one of the most boring, predictable answers Jesus ever gave. Everyone hears him say this and they say, yes, of course, standard answer, good answer, rabbi. But then Jesus does something kind of shocking. Something no one would have expected him to do. He amends it. He adds to Shema by saying, and the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And he takes these two commands and he merges them, melds them, and fixes them together. Now, we've heard this verse so often that that doesn't really shock us, but we have to understand this. The listeners in Jesus' day, they would have been shocked. They would have been asking this question, who has the authority to amend Shema? The best example I can think of, there really isn't a great one in our world, but the best example I can think of would be if we were saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and at the end, um, I said, with liberty and justice for all, especially Oregonians, because we have the best state, and we have to endure a lot, and it's been raining a lot this year, so give us extra blessing and justice and mercy, period. (laughs) Now, people, maybe maybe you guys would agree, but non-Oregonians would say, Well, who does this guy think he is that he can amend the pledge? It's the pledge. You don't mess with the pledge. And that's exactly what the listeners are thinking about Jesus. Who does this guy think that he is that he can amend sacred Shema? And so the question becomes, why? Why does Jesus do this? What is he up to here? And I want to suggest that there is this theme that runs through the Old Testament, but Throughout the history of Israel, they tend to move away from this theme. God constantly is giving this message, sending um, his instruction to the people, but the people are, are consistently fighting it. And that's this. The notion that love for God and love for people are inextricably tied together. It's all throughout the scriptures. If you love me, if you know that I love you, then that love will spill out of your life onto the lives of the people around you, onto the rest of God's children. If you love me and you know that I love you, then you will love my kids. You will love humanity. And that's why Jesus, because he knows that we tend to drift away from this, mentions this and ties these two thoughts together, not once, not twice, not three times, but eight times in the Gospels. 
Jesus takes this love for God and love for neighbor, love for humanity, and he weds them together. Now, it's important, I think, for us as we dive into this idea of exploring loving your neighbor to understand what the Bible means when it says to love because this is not a sentimental thing. This is not love the way we sometimes think about and imagine love in our world. This is not emotional love. In fact, the best and most simple definition of love I've found is a very simple, very concrete definition. I love this definition. To intend another's good. To love someone is to intend their good. To intend, to love somebody is to intend their good as God intends their good. That's to love as a Christ follower. That's to love as a follower of God. To intend another's good as God intends their good. You see, love in the scriptures is not emotional desire. When Jesus says to love your neighbor, he's not talking about feeling warm and fuzzy about your neighbor. Because friends, here's the truth. I can feel warm and fuzzy about things, even about people, and not love them at all. At least not in the way the scriptures talk about love. I don't know if you know this or not. Maybe you do. But right here in Portland, in our midst, we have the greatest donut shop on the planet. It's not Blue Star, where the donuts cost eight fifty. It's not Voodoo Donuts. It's Sesame Donuts. Now, you're going to learn a lot today in the message, but this is one that you should write down. Take notes on this. Every year in the fall, Sesame Donuts puts out this seasonal donut, the apple cider donut. And our family loves them. My wife is addicted to them. We buy them by the boxfuls. And um, just in case you're nervous about me talking about my wife's love for donut, I, donuts, I cleared this illustration with her. It's a very sensitive thing to talk about, you know, your wife's addiction to donuts. But she said it was okay because she said they're just that good and everyone should have them. Um, but if they're sold out, I haven't thought about this, but if they're sold out next year, it's going to be a bummer. Anyway, um, so Amy would say this. She would say, I love apple cider donuts. But she doesn't love them the way God talks about love. She doesn't will their good. She doesn't work so that they can realize their full potential as little donuts. She just wants to eat them for her own satisfaction. She desires them. She does not love them. And here's the point, friends, again. Love is not a desire. This is not a a, a series on, you should be so friendly and nice and warm feeling towards every single person who lives around you. That will not happen. It's not what God is calling you to live into. It's not what God says should happen. So love is not a desire. Love is also not just always doing what the other person wants. Again, this is not a series where we're saying, hey, we want you to make sure that your neighbors are always happy with you, that you're always doing things just the way They want you to do them, that you're trying to sort of meet their standards and constantly make them happy. No, that's not love. Every parent knows this. If you ever had a child, you know that you love your kids. And because you love your kids, you don't always give them their way, right? If you always give them their their way, you don't love them. That's not love. You see, sometimes we have to make hard decisions. And so this is not a series, again, about... Making your neighbors happy all the time, even happy with you. No, this is a series about loving your neighbor, intending their good as God intends their good. And Jesus says to love them, love your neighbor. Now, the word neighbor is an interesting word. It comes from the old word nigh, to draw nigh or to be be close. And it comes from the Dutch word burr, which means to dwell. 
Nibur, one who dwells close. And so here's where it gets a little tricky. Because Jesus says to love, right? Not a cause, not some abstract group of people located on the other side of the globe, real far away, where you'll never have to be put out by coming into contact with them. No, he says to love your neighbor, the people that are right up in your business. He says, want my intended good for them. For the real flesh and blood, imperfect, sometimes difficult people that life may cause to dwell close to you. Love your neighbor. I mean, here's a question. What if, just imagine this for a minute, what if when Jesus called his followers to love their neighbors, he actually wanted us to love our neighbors? Dave Runyon, the guy who wrote the book, Art of Neighboring, actually mentions that as they have talked to city officials all over the country, they have heard something over and over and over and over again in almost every city they've been in. At least for me, this has been kind of convicting and a bit disappointing. Here's how one city official put it. From the city's perspective, there is not a noticeable difference between how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. I'll read that again. From the city's perspective, there is not a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in their communities. So, let's review. Neighboring has huge impact in our world. Jesus calls his followers to put the loving of neighbors at the very top of our priority lists. And finally, city officials don't think we are any better neighbors than people who don't follow Jesus. Friends, maybe something needs to change. Maybe we've got some work to do. And so over the next few weeks, we are going to get very intentional and specific about this. This is not going to be one of those series where you can think about it, you can feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, and you can go home and go about the rest of your week. No, we're going to put boots on the ground in this series. We are going to take some action steps starting right now. Right now, I'm going to ask every single one of you to locate a writing utensil. Try to find a pencil or pen, dig through purses, wallets, there's some pencils in the racks in front of you. You can share if you need to. Don't be a hogger of the devices. Um, Look around. Be a community right now. I'm also going to ask you to pull out the discussion uh, question sheet in the middle of your bulletin. There's a sheet in there. On one side, it has some discussion questions. On the other side, it's the place where you take notes during our sermons. At the very top of that notes section is this grid right here. And here's the assignment. This is a picture of your neighborhood. You can see your house right there in the middle or your apartment building. Now, let me just pause and say this. Don't be this person. I know not everyone's neighborhood is configured this way. I know some of you live on the corner. I know some of you live on a lane. I know there's a forest area across the street or behind or next to some of you. Adapt. Work with me here. Freedom to think on your own. Okay, now that we're through that, here's a generic map of your neighborhood. You can see that there's some people that live next to you, across from you. And if you're like an overachiever, even behind you and diagonally behind you. Maybe this challenge to love our neighbors, love those who dwell close by us, starts with just knowing the names of the people that live 
around us. And so here's the assignment. Right now, I'm going to give you just a few minutes to see how you do. Try to name um, or write down the names of the people living in those homes. Start with the adults, and if they have children, try to list those. Then, if you get all of the names right, you can list things like hobbies, interests, where they work, maybe dreams they have, concerns they're facing, struggles that they're dealing with. Um, just take a few minutes, write down as much information as you can in just a few minutes. You can take this home and work on it a little more later, but I'm going to give you just a couple minutes now to work on filling out your chart. If you need to redraw draw the chart to fit your neighborhood, great. If you need one of these sheets and you didn't grab one on the way in, the ushers will bring you one if you just throw your hand up. Okay, it's time. The first service was really kind of dead in this moment. It was kind of like, mm, not a lot of enthusiasm. I want enthusiasm from 11. So here we go. Ready? Husbands, don't just mooch off your wife and try to take credit. I know how you are. Do your best. Just a few minutes here. Ready? Begin. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's a beautiful day for a neighbor. That's like the catchiest song. I just want you to know, Mr. Rogers, you may think he's dated. He is not. My kids, I was singing that song around the house this week. And you can keep working as I'm talking here a little bit. I was singing the song this week around the house and my kids started catching on and they were singing it by themselves. I'd catch them in their rooms, like whistling it. Last night, my daughter, my youngest daughter was in the bathtub and like in the safety of the bathroom when like you think no one can hear you and the acoustics are really good. And Amy and I were like in the other room outside and all of a sudden we hear her in there just like belting it out, you know. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. She'd never seen Mr. Rogers, but you know, it just gets in your bones. Did you guys know that Mr. Rogers was an adorned, ordained, adorned, he was adorned as well, ordained Presbyterian pastor? Yeah, pretty cool. At any rate, all right, hey, let's bring it back in. How'd you do? You did well? All right. Well, uh, Dave Runyon, the author of the book, calls this the chart of shame. Um, He says that on average in churches, only about 10% of people can get every adult name right on that chart. Only one out of ten people in churches can name all the names of the adults in the, ho- in the homes around them. And that's just the names. That's nothing else. Just names. Um, and so if you're one of the people that could do that, great. Good for you. If you're not, here's the good news. 
That was only a practice test. Um, I'm one of those professors that gives the test out early and then in a few weeks we're going to retake the test and you are all going to do better. And the reason I know that is because you have an assignment and your assignment is this. Over the next few weeks, we as a church are going to be intentional about taking some steps towards our neighbors. And step one is to simply find out the names of the people living in the homes near you. Step two will be to get to know them a little bit, to pray for those people. Maybe you don't know the name and you need to find the name or figure out the name. You don't even know where to begin. I'd suggest just ask the Lord to open up some doors for you and pray, God, would you help me know how to even connect with the people that live around me? Maybe it's been a long time and you feel embarrassed about it. Don't feel embarrassed. They feel just as embarrassed as you. Break the ice. Be the one who takes the first step. I also want to acknowledge one thing here before we move on too quickly, and that's this. For some in this room, this is a super exciting challenge. Um, For some of you, you're like, this is it. I like my neighbors. This is a chance to connect and engage. And you're already planning like a block party and a barbecue. And you got one of those little s'mores like campfire pits out front. And you're excited about this. And others of you are cringing. You're like, this is the worst assignment we've ever had. There's... Two different groups in this room. There are extroverts and introverts. And introverts, let me just say this to you. Your day is coming. This summer, we're going to talk about going deep in quiet solitude and prayer with God. And then you'll get to watch the extroverts squirm a bit. And so the, the idea is that all of us are good at certain things. This is not a competition. This is not, I'm better than you, or I'm more of a you know, Jesus person than you because I know my neighbors, or I'm excited about this. Wherever you are and whoever you are, This is our chance as a community to think a bit more intentionally about reaching out into the lives of the people around us with the love of God for their best, right? That's our goal. And so if you're new here at Cedar Mill and you've never experienced homework in church, welcome. Welcome to our church. I also want to bring one more thing up before we move on, and that's probably one of the biggest problems you may be facing Maybe the quiz highlighted this fact for you, reminded you of this. And that's that you want to love your neighbors, but you have a neighbor, or maybe two, that's actually pretty unlovable. Anyone here have a neighbor that's hard to get along with? A neighbor who's cranky? Someone who plays their music too loud? Someone who parks their car in front of your house? The audacity? I don't like that actually, which is kind of, I, I admit, I confess that to you, that when people park in front of my house, I get kind of weird about it. So I, Lord, take that away. Anyway, um, we lived in Ventura for a few years and the folks on our right um, moved away. They, they sold the house, they moved out. And a woman named Carol moved in with her two kids. And to say that Carol did not have a green thumb was an overstatement. It was the overstatement of the year because within six months, her entire lawn was dead. Everything in her lawn was dead. Like not kind of dead, not struggling a bit, like brown, dried, crumbling, withering, dead. The only thing living in Carol's lawn were the weeds that seemed to be flourishing because she never mowed. And so six months in, um, they were there. The property value of my house had plummeted because of her lawn. And Carol was not very friendly, made it even harder. She did not want to engage. She had two children that would say inappropriate things to my children. Carol also had a dog that she kept in the backyard. And she didn't treat her dog too well, which kind of drove my wife absolutely nutty. And 
along with destroying my fence, Carol's middle school son would routinely take dog poop from their lawn and throw it over the fence into our lawn. One time at one of my children. So I think you're getting the picture here. I wasn't a big Carol fan. Um, and sometimes I would go to work and I would vent a little bit, just a little bit about Carol and how hard it was for me to have to live next to her. But one of my coworkers there also lived in our neighborhood, not, not right there near us, but a few streets over. And he would listen to me complain about Carol and he's a fun guy who loves Jesus a lot. And I would complain about her and he would say, man, you know, it's crazy how that single mom of two can't find time to keep her yard up. If only there was someone around who could help her with it. Like, you know, and I'd say, man, you know, this Carol lady, she really seems like, you know, what she really needs is to encounter the love of Jesus in her life. If only God would bring someone into her life close by who had an understanding of God's love and grace and truth. If only God would do that. Let's pray that someone, you know, would would connect with Carol in that way. And, um, there was this other moment that, this is just beautiful, uh, my buddy, his name was Brian, he actually, he's actually the speaker at our men's retreat in two weeks, so that's what I'm talking about right now. Um, you'll meet him, he is sarcastic and funny, and he loves God a lot, and sometimes you hate him. But um, one day I was out front working on my lawn, Carol had come out to go out and get into her car parked in front of my house, and Brian happened to, at this very moment, just because this is who God is, and he has a sense of humor, Brian was out on a run, and he happened to be running past and Brian didn't know Carol at all. Didn't know her. I mean, he just had heard stories. I think maybe he'd seen her once or anything. He goes running past, doesn't say a word to me, and all of a sudden he just shouts out, like as loud as he can, Hi, Carol! As he's running past. And there I am with Carol, and she kind of looks at him like, Who are you? And he just goes, God loves you! And then he just keeps going. <laughs> oh, man. And then she kind of looked at me, and I was just like, Ah, oh, I don't know what to do now. And threw some dog poop into her yard. I don't know. Anyway, here's the point. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not saying to do this when people are perfect or easy or when they meet some sort of, some sort of moral or ethical or homeowners association standard that you believe they should meet. There are no clauses on this. You know, it's interesting. The initial command to love your neighbor uh, doesn't actually come from Jesus It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Leviticus. And listen to what it says. Jesus gets his stuff right from here. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, this command is not written about the neighbors who are easy to love, but about the ones you dislike so much that you are tempted to take revenge on them. If you've ever found yourself thinking, I am going to throw dog poop in my neighbor's yard, been there, this command is for you. Jesus says, oh, I got the perfect thing for you, Dave. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Dave and Ruth, they lived on the other side of us and they were great. They were easy to love. I did not need a pep talk or a Bible verse or significant help from the Holy Spirit to love them. But Carol, she was exactly who God had in mind when he said, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, maybe the neighbor most difficult for you to love is actually the neighbor who needs a taste of God's love the most. And here's how. Here's how you can actually love even a difficult neighbor. 
Notice at the end of this command in Leviticus, there's this statement, I am the Lord. And, and it's like, what's that doing there? It's like, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Is that God like asserting his authority? Like, I'm in charge, do what I say. Is that what that's about? No, I don't think so. It's not what God's after here. Here's, here's what's going on. Our call to love people is not rooted in their behavior or their beliefs. It's rooted in who our God is. And the Bible says this, our God, the God of the scriptures, the God who created the universe and all of humanity is love. We love because he is love. We love because he first loved us. Our love is just a reflection of his love. Love that we didn't earn. Love that we do not deserve. And again, we take it for granted. We are so used to hearing about how God is love and how he is so loving. But that would have been a shocking reality in Jesus' day. I mean, nobody ever went around saying, Zeus is your God, therefore love your neighbor. Or Moloch is your God, so you should love other people. No, these were selfish, vengeful gods of justice and wrath and power. Nothing about following them or serving them made you want to love other people in a selfless way. And so God is absolutely unique in this. And as Christ followers, because our God is love, the way we relate to people is completely opposite from the way the world relates to people. If you think about relationships in the world, and you'll notice this um, this week when you go out, this is how worldly relationships work. Maybe it's how some of your relationships work, and we need to kind of readjust. But this is how it happens. The world says, if I can agree with you, then I can respect you. And if I can respect you, I can accept you. See, worldly relationships are all formed on agreements, agreements about something, We agree about the rules, about the standards, about values, about religion. We agree about how front lawns in the neighborhood should be kept, how parenting should go. And because we agree, I can respect you. Because I respect you, now I can accept you. This is homeowners association love, not Christian love. See, as Christ followers, that whole paradigm gets turned on its head. It's a really powerful and absolutely freeing thing to realize if you're a follower of Jesus today. You see, Jesus' followers say this, I accept you because you are a child of the living God, because you are created in His image. And because of that, I can show respect to you. And from that foundation of acceptance and respect, we can find and work towards agreements. We can even have disagreements. We can have disagreements. We can disagree about a whole slew of things. We can disagree about really important things. But guess what? I can accept you and I can still respect you. And aren't you happy that God approaches us in the second way? That he doesn't wait for us to get our lives together. He doesn't wait for us to agree and to do things the way he needs us to do them so that he can respect us and accept us? Aren't you glad that he accepted us while we were yet sinners? Christ died for us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And God says, now go out and relate to the people in this world in the same way. By the way, friends, some of you have asked questions like, how do I interact with this person or this person or this person? They're so awful. They're so horrible. They're such a sinner. I don't want to condone their behavior. Friends, accept and respect and love and then work towards agreements. Agreements don't determine our love. They flow out of our love. 
Agreements form from in the soil of acceptance and respect. So you have a neighbor who doesn't agree with you about yard upkeep standards or music volumes or a moral issue of some kind. That's okay. You can still love them. Your love isn't bound to their choices and behaviors. And then we look for ways to show love because here's what's great about love in the Bible. It's not just a theory. It's not just an emotion. It's not just something we have. It's something we do. It's something we live into. It's something we live from. And the Bible is filled with all these wonderfully concrete applications of the way we live out our love as neighbors. Here's one. Proverbs 3.28. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. And the idea here is that as neighbors, we share with one another. We give. We don't hoard our stuff for ourselves. We use what we have for the benefit and good of those around us. Remember earlier this year when we had snowpocalypse in the middle of the day and the Beaverton School District was not quite ready for it and so hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of kids were stranded at school Well, my middle school daughter was one of those kids, and it started off really fun. Um, She was there. We connected with her on a phone. She was doing fine. They were watching movies. They were thawing out frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and giving the kids some food. And, you know, it's kind of this big adventure, this big memory. And we lived on a hill, and I don't have four-wheel drive, so I wasn't going to go get her. So it was kind of like, well, let us know when the bus comes. And so it was fun for a while. But then when 7.30 came, and she was still there, and the bus still hadn't arrived, it was starting to get long. And my next door neighbor heard that she was stranded and he came over and he said, hey, I got four-wheel drive. I can navigate this snow easily. Jump in with me. Let's go get her. You see, that's, that's what a neighbor does. A neighbor says, this isn't my truck. This isn't my four-wheel drive. This is something I can use for your good. And we were blessed and we rescued her and several of her friends even and drove them home and it was a great chance to connect with with Bruce, the guy who lives next door to me, um, who was an example to me of what good neighboring is. You see, when we think about good neighboring, we sometimes just think about tasks, but I think it even goes farther than that. Here's, Here's another proverb. It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. I love that word kind there. You see, you know, one of the ways I think we despise our neighbors, not too many of us are like openly and outright despising our neighbors, are we? Doing mean, evil things to them, poisoning their flowers or whatever. No. I hope not, anyway. If so, see me after. Um, but one of the ways that we, I think, really subtly and, and powerfully despise our neighbors is by just withdrawing from them. Just not giving them any of our time or attention or concern by not caring enough for them to stop and talk and listen. You see, when we think about good neighboring, we tend to think about it on a very surface level. We say, what's a good neighbor? A good neighbor is someone who keeps their lawn nice, says hi with a smile, maybe comes over to help with the shoveling when it snows, and those things are good things. They're a good starting place. But here's what I believe. Here's what I think the heart of God would say. What people often need more than something to be done for them is someone who has time to listen to them. Someone who will take the time to say, I care for you. I'm here for you. You, as a human being, matter beyond tasks. 
And so in closing, I want to talk about where we find the strength to really care. Because this is not a series, hear me friends, don't miss this point, this is not a series about trying harder to be a good neighbor. If that's all we're doing, then, you know, don't come next week and just order a self-help book. This is actually a series where we as a community are determining to invite God, to invite the gospel to inform and fuel our attitudes and interactions with those who live around us. Again, it's interesting to note, isn't it, the order in which Jesus gives what's called the great commandment, the greatest commandment. When the love of God, he says, is flowing through your heart and mind and soul and strength. And that's just a way of saying like, when the love of God overtakes all of who you are, every fiber of your being. When you realize that the Lord of the universe loves you fully and completely and then you in return determine to receive that love and love him back. That love, the gospel says, God's love empowers you to love people in a different way, in a way that you never could sustain by just trying harder in your own effort. And so again, as a community this morning, we are going to come to the table We're going to take the Lord's Supper and we come to the table to fuel up on the grace and truth and love of God found in the cross. We come to the table to remember that our neighboring flows out of the neighboring we've been offered by the God of the universe who drew nigh, who didn't stand at a distance, who didn't cast us out, who didn't judge us for our sins and shortcomings, who sent his son into the world to sacrifice that we might find forgiveness and life and hope and peace. And so in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to the table. And when you come, take the bread And remember that it reminds us of the body of the Lord that was given for you and me, that God loved us so much that he gave his son. Take the cup and remember the blood that was shed so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could have a new relationship with the Lord of the universe. Come to the table and don't just go through a routine. Take the elements and remember who you are. Remember that you were valued and loved so much that you were bought at a price, the price of God's only Son. And as you remember what's been done for you, let this meal fuel you and fill you to go and be the kind of neighbor that God longs you to be, that God's love offered to you would flow into you and then through you, that you could offer that same love back to the people that live near you. The tables are open when you're ready. Take the elements and then receive them on your own.